is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. In this episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Terry Connoran. Terry is a lung cancer survivor and patient advocate. As a patient advocate, she advocates for comprehensive biomarker testing for lung cancer patients. She also encourages patients to become more involved in their own care, but also, if possible, in a patient support group. This all stems from Terry's own struggle with lung cancer, which started in the summer of 2016. In our interview, Terry points to the benefit of knowing other patients and their experience. But she also explains how important the support is from family and friends. The Oncuzine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncuzine, at www.oncuzine.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and cancer prevention. I'm Peter Hovland, and this is the Oncuzine Brief. Terry, welcome to the Oncuzine Brief. Before we're going to talk about lung cancer, your own experience with lung cancer, and your work as a patient advocate, how are you doing in these strange times we're living in with COVID-19? I'm doing really great right now, actually. We've been home since about the 1st of March uh, with a respiratory issue like COVID. Uh, lung cancer patients are at very high risk, but we're healthy. Whole families is being um, in lockdown, and we're getting uh, quite a bit of family time together. Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the things that you will see with COVID. I mean, everybody at home, time to uh, spend a lot of time with family, sometimes good and sometimes bad. I think I hear mostly stories about uh, how people are growing together and and, and discovering one another's kind of uh, positive traits to some extent. And I think it's kind of interesting. So now talking about lung cancer and, and COVID, of course, is a respiratory disease or is part of that before we're going to really talk about uh, about your situation as a as a as a patient, cancer patient, how is COVID kind of uh, hurting people with with lung cancer? It's scaring us. It's really terrifying us. The reality is that um, lung cancer patients in general are not more inclined to catch COVID. However, once we do catch it, if we catch it, where it's a lot more dangerous for us. And so the whole point we've been trying to make in general um, in the lung cancer community is just stay home, be careful, wash your hands, and just don't go out if you don't need to. If it does get infected into your body, um, it's a lot higher risk. Mm -hmm. And and I think the uh, normal circumstances for healthy people, those recommendations are always a good thing to follow. I think especially if you have an underlying disease like lung cancer. I think it's definitely a very wise thing to to follow up with that. Now, as I mentioned in the uh, introduction, you have your own history with lung cancer, uh, which started in 2016. Now, although you were not diagnosed until I, I think it was early 2017, but it is fair is it fair to say that your your symptoms, although you did not recognize them as such, started in 2016? Oh, absolutely. I think it kind of started and it was leading up. I have had asthma for a number of years, which is just something you've just kind of kind of lived with and 
treated chronically. And so when I went into the doctor over the course of the summer, complaining that I couldn't breathe with the humidity, what have you, um, they changed my preventative inhaler and said, well, it's going to take a little bit of time for it to take a work. And so just check back with us if there's any problems. And so I was very patient and kind of let it go. And as the asthma progressed and it turned into allergy season, then I had another excuse and busy mom stuff. And Christmas started happening and started feeling just sicker and sicker. And my husband finally said, you know, it's almost Christmas time. You, you, you just go to the doctor, get an antibiotic, and let's just move on so you can be healthy for Christmas. So right before Christmas, I headed into the doctor and she could, she listened to my breathing and she could definitely hear some gurgling in there. So mm-hmm. she suspected pneumonia from the pneumonia. We just did a little chest x-ray right there in her office. The um, fluid within my lungs highlighted that there was a tumor in there. So she, okay, referred me and said, well, let's get you on some antibiotics and get started with that and come back like right at the first year where you might need to do a little bit more testing. And there's a part of me that kind of suspected that it might be something bad because cancer kind of runs in my family and been really cautious about getting breast cancer tests and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what my mom and grandmother and great-grandmother and such cousins have all died from. But I just didn't really kind of see that coming. So went in right after the first of in January of 17, and it Long story short, over the course of about three weeks, we have CT scans and PET scans and what have you, what originally they thought might just be pneumonia and ended up being uh, lung cancer. Right. And initially, I think in the the small conversation that we had before our show, you mentioned that in, in the initial phases, it was kind of a roller coaster for you because it was like you expected that there was something and then a doctor mentioned to me, well, there is something. And then in the follow-up, they says, well, there is nothing. And then it turns out to be something. Tell oh me about it. Oh my gosh. That. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when you're going through it, 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 it's just truly a wild ride. Does it be on like we, you can even imagine you go into the doctor expecting to just, you know, get your antibiotic and head in your merry way. And when she saw something in my chest, um, like I said, there's so much cancer in my family. I, I think I just really kind of thought it was cancer. And I just kind of like started mulling it over. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a mom. And I didn't want to ruin everybody's Christmas. And certainly didn't want to tell my husband because he can't keep a secret. So I, I just kind of like, well, I, I think this is what it is. And so I was real intentional going back to the doctor. But I kind of thought that's what it was. And I first went back to the doctor and she, my, my PCP, she referred me all the pulmonologists. And the first visit, by then I had mentioned to my husband, I think this might be like, this might really be cancer. And he, we went in for the pulmonologist appointment, appointment. And at the pulmonologist appointment, he sat there looking at the scans, talking to us. And he said, I want you guys to know that all the time I tell people if I think something looks like lung cancer, and this doesn't look like lung cancer. And I mean, I thought, oh, my God, I'm like in clear. This is good. And I immediately just felt, I felt healthier. I didn't feel any better, but I felt like it was healthier, and I felt like I got it. So it's like, okay, but, you know, just in case, I want you I want you to go ahead and let's get the rest of these scans done, and let's go on in and get um, do a biopsy. 
And, but I, we're just probably just going to confirm that it's just nothing. I figured it might be something like Valley fever that I'd had when I lived in the desert years before. And uh, so we went in and uh, came home in kind of a, a, an upbeat celebratory manner, actually. Uh, we were not partying because I was still feeling kind of lousy. But, I, you know, we, we thought we had this under control. I, mm-hmm. It still took probably uh, nearly two weeks going back to the doctor uh, with more testing and stuff. And then when the call actually came in um, with the biopsy results, I had a biopsy on a Thursday and the doctor called me on Friday at five o'clock. And I can still remember just right where I was sitting on the porch, piece of paper in front of me and kind of looking there. And it's almost like one of those moments where you feel like it's an out of body situation. You can just kind of like look down on yourself. And I can remember just sitting there looking at that pen and paper as he's telling me on the phone that it's non-small cell lung lung cancer. So that that was basically the, the confirmation that you had lung cancer. Yes, that was a confirmation that I had lung cancer. So over the course of that, that whole timeline probably took close to a month. And yes, that was a confirmation that I had it. And then from there, over the week, and I didn't react real well to, to the biopsy. My lung totally filled up with fluid. So mm-hmm. I woke up on the next day thinking, actually, I was having a heart attack. I I've gone to bed feeling stressed and knowing that this is lung cancer and did everything I could to stay off off the internet because I knew nothing good was going to come of that. And I woke up in the morning and it was just like I just couldn't breathe and it felt like my heart was just exploding out of my chest. Mm-hmm. And my my husband was just well, you need to go to the emergency room. And I'm like stubborn. It's like, no, I'm not going to go to the emergency room. I'm fine. I can wait till Monday. Oh, I'll go to urgent care. Maybe like, no, no, no. You need to go to the emergency room. So finally, after a long negotiation, uh, I said, all right, we'll go to the emergency room, but only if I can drive. So I drove up to the emergency room and uh, they immediately uh, admitted me. So I kind of thought maybe there might actually be something serious going on. Uh, they, when they admitted me, I've never been admitted straight from the emergency room. So it it was, again, just uh, kind of breathtaking. Uh, in there, uh, the, the emergency room doctor finally came in. He says, hey, so tell me what's going on. And I looked down. I said, well, you know, I have lung cancer. And this man said, well, h- how did you know that? Said, well, my doctor called me yesterday. Said, oh my gosh, you're kidding. He's like, oh, well, I'm so relieved. I thought I was going to have to tell you, or somebody told you that was this spot in your chart and they mentioned it out of turn. So, like, somehow my lung cancer and me knowing ahead of time was a big relief to this doctor. Let's take a break. And then we're back with our interview with Terry Conneran. Terry is a lung cancer survivor and patient advocate. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. 
SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Did you know that generic drugs are just as safe and effective as brand name drugs? Generics might look different, but they work the same way. And they can even save you money. Don't believe me? Ask your doctor or pharmacist. Or visit FDA.gov slash generic drugs. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hofflin and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Youngest in Brief. They admitted me, they kept me, and that's when I first met my oncology team. The, uh, the team, and they, they put me up, drained my, drained my lungs. Um, they pulled off nearly two liters of fluid from the, from the baths, and then it filled up and blew me up and what have you. And I uh, met the oncologist, the oncologist, a nice lady, and she set me up with the tumor board for that coming week where they discussed everything that was going on with my case, and they were able to take a look at everything and make a good plan. Uh, and then from that was on Tuesday, and then on Thursday, we went back as a family and sat down with the whole team. Uh, right. We met individually with each each doctor. Uh, we had a fabulous situation with uh, the, the tumor board. We were able to meet individually with the radiologist, the oncologist, the surgeon, a nurse navigator, a nutritionist, and a social worker. And we had probably 20, 30 minutes with each person. My whole family was brought in to be able to ask any questions that we had. And the initial plan was for me to just go straight in for surgery and have um, my total lung removed. But that didn't happen. That's not what happened, no. no. <laughs> that was the plan. So we did all the blood work and what have you. And later found that they sent away um, my biopsy. They sent away my biopsy for tumor testing. And the tumor testing is what we were kind of waiting to come back. Uh, when the tumor testing came back, my doctor changed the plan. She found out that I was high PDL1, which means that I would be responsive to some drugs instead of others. And also that I would probably do very well with just having the surgery, but I should respond well to the chemo. So mm-hmm. we decided to have the chemo first. And I did three rounds of chemo uh, with a cisplatin and an Olympta before I went in. And then I had surgery um, over at Mother's Day weekend in May. And then I did another round of chemo following that. But I didn't have to have my whole lung removed. I only was only had to have one lobe of my left lung. The left side has two lobes, I've come to find out. And so I was only able, I only had to have the bottom left removed because I did respond really well to the chemo. I think that is uh, um, <laughs> the uh, new adjuvant or basically the, the treatment you had before surgery, obviously, worked well in your case. Now, tell me a little bit more about, again, we were talking a little bit about the emotional roller coaster. You went there, you, you, you were told that you were going to have surgery first, and then the plan changed from your perspective as a patient, but also in, in observing your, your husband, your family. I mean, how did it all impact you guys? Oh, my gosh. You know, I think I watched my husband age 50 years overnight. And my kids, my kids are all in their 20s. My youngest was about to graduate high school. 
and or excuse me, she was about to graduate from college. And that was actually what delayed having the surgery. So when they told me that we were going to do the chemo first, um, I was relieved, confused, baffled, but at the same time, uh, really relieved. Uh, the the kids were all, my, my two oldest ones are in their 20s, and they live locally. And they were, uh, they kept telling me that I didn't understand what they were going through. And the mm-hmm. truth of the matter is I did because my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 18 and living at home. And I did understand what they were going through and I did understand how they felt and I did everything I could to try and protect them. That wasn't always a good thing because honesty is harsh, but it's kind of necessary to treat them as the young adults that they needed to be. The biggest problem was my youngest was graduating from college and somehow she just kind of felt like the spotlight had left her and immediately like shined on me. <laughs> Almost as though this was an intentional situation. And I can assure you, I'd much rather would have just skipped all that entirely. Mm-hmm. But my husband was trying to get information. He, he, you know, he's an IT and he, he wants to know what's going on. My son was was all over the place. He needed to know the ingredients that was going to be going into the chemo and, and what happens when they remove a little of a lung and, and what fills up in that space. And, and I'll never forget my son telling me that it's like, you know, I, I, when I shook the doctor's hand, I shook, shook the surgeon's hand. I felt confident because I really felt like I, he really gave me a good solid handshake and I knew he was going to do a good job cutting you open. I was like, these are things that just never even crossed my mind that what was in the chemo or that the doctor's hand was, was solid. I, I assure you, I would have noticed if his hands were jumping around, but it, you know, everybody's on their own journey. And at the same time, it, it's kind of like something out of Star Wars, you know, and each laser beam going every different direction. And we're all trying to converge in the same place at the same time and feeling the emotions and, and trying to breathe in and just actually breathe in and relax and get through it. Even though you're the patient and your family goes to their own emotions, maybe the potential, the idea of, of losing you, I mean, to some extent, because cancer, well, well, I mean, cancer takes lives. I mean, that, that roller coaster, but it, how did they also, or how did you all basically support one another in, 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 in coming together? Did that really work? It really does work. It really does work. And the the scariest part was that because lung cancer kills more people than any other cancer, I think that was the first part. And the second part was my kids were hearing that if they told somebody, a friend or something, that I had lung cancer, your parent, their friends were asking, or even actually people at church were asking, well, did she smoke? And mm-hmm. that was the f- most shocking part. And so that kind of had to bring us together because they were it was like, People were trying to point to us and trying to point that I did something wrong or that her family did something wrong and the stigmatizing. And as difficult as it may be to face some sort of an enemy or some sort of invader, you know, it brings other people together. And we were able to kind of lean into each other and lean on to each other in, in a in, in a healthy manner, you know, not everybody's going to be able to be strong in the same day. And a day that I'm weak, my husband is strong. 
but you need to be able to have that conversation. The hard part was that I really needed to talk to somebody else who had been through it. Mm-hmm. My family kind of kept saying, they almost were guilty me. It's like, but you're the rock bomb. You have to stay together and you've got to be okay. Like, if I'm doing the best I can, good for heaven's sakes. And I don't know what's going on particularly. It's not like I've been through this before. So right. I went reaching out and looking to talk to other patients. And I wanted to hear somebody else. I knew that I wasn't the first person. All I wanted to do was just really talk to somebody and see and like see them and that they looked normal, that they looked okay, not look like they were about to die. I wanted to see that they were all right and know that I could kind of like see hope in their eyes. And that's, I swore that if I got through what I was going through, that's what I would do is I would do it as much as I could for others. So Mm -hmm. I was able to find that support. It took time. I took Googling and it took looking and it took being open and it took being vulnerable and vulnerability is not easy. It's not easy at all. Right. And it also takes a level of honesty. That's just kind of different. And so I was able to connect with, with different patients. The first group I was really able to connect with that was like face to face is is really where I I got my grounding because I wanted to see in person face to face. I was a little suspicious of some of the other things that were online and initially. And uh, so I was able to connect with the Live Lung Group, which is the Lung Cancer Support Group. They just happened to be starting a local chapter here in Charlotte just shortly after my diagnosis. And I was able to go in there, surprised to see other people in that room that you had no idea who they were or what they were but they sure didn't look sick and they didn't look like what I thought a lung cancer patient would look like. How did that impact you? Because obviously when you, 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 you think about people are sick, I'm going to, to a lung cancer meeting or I'm going to meet people that were lung cancer patients. Yet when you meet them for the first time, uh, they look healthy. So how did that impact you? I was shocked. And more than shocked, I was relieved and filled with hope. I didn't feel like I was just the exception. You know, if you if you like feel like you're the lone ranger, you're the only one out there like you, it's a really lonely place to feel. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to be one of the big statistics of not living. Don't get me wrong. But I wanted to see other people that could, you know, share with that excitement and, and be able to just kind of connect with them. So I was walking in not knowing what I was going to walk into. I didn't know if it was going to be just a group of people like barely leaning against the wall looking like they just, you know, they barely got out of hospice or like they really belong there or something. And um, so it totally filled me with hope. And then being able to connect with them on an individual basis. Let's take a break, and then we talk a little bit more with Terry Connoran. Clinical trials allow researchers to introduce new hope by providing participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. 
Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. If you're just joining us, in this episode of the Augustine Brief, I talk with Terry Conneran. Terry is a lung cancer survivor and patient advocate. With the lung cancer, it's almost like you're able to kind of like take away a little bit of that veil. You're actually able to just kind of see somebody and it's less about what you're wearing or where you're from or what have you. There's a brother and a sisterhood that's just kind of a different sort of a level And that's kind of like more than just support. They've become extensive family to me. So from from those folks there, and I'm still in touch with like all those people from that from that initial meeting that I had attended, and I I I became more involved, and it gave me a little bit more confidence to kind of like reach out for others. I didn't feel so much like the Lone Ranger. I was able to connect with them and hear their story. And right. find out more about what it was like to go through, whether it was a medication or how they have a treatment or just kind of like, you know, if I was just crazy because like I wasn't getting along with, I don't know, a, a doctor or just having trouble or just finding out that there are different kinds of doctors and different sorts of things. First time I'd heard the term integrative oncology was from somebody that I'm um, in one of these support groups. Right. So connecting with them on that personal level based on that commonality is, is, it's just, it's more than just like, you know, I'm from the class of whatever, you know, in high school, this is like truly more of a familial sort of a, a connection and, you know, reaching into beyond just like the individual face-to-face support groups, expanding out into the community and talking to others and bringing more awareness to it. I was able to connect with other people through some of the larger organizations nationally and both locally um, right. through Longevity and GoTo Foundation. Now, that is all very important, but of course, it is it's your personal history that is guided in, in this whole process of getting to know those people. After, I think, June 2017, you were in a good place, I think, to some extent. I mean, for 18 months, you had no evidence of disease. You went to um, the International Lung Cancer Survivor Conference. You had uh, meet meeting your new friends. And then when you came back, there were, uh, what happened? Yeah. Yeah. From all that high there of about 18 months or so of feeling great, feeling fantastic and reaching out, kind of feeling like I would get my life back together. And I did go to that personal longevity um, conference where there was approximately 500 lung cancer survivors all in one area. And what I, again, was like not quite sure what I was going to be walking into. I ended up leaving there just feeling jacked up on hope, just totally filled and pumped with it. And came home ready to do my um, my next scan because I've been doing them every three months faithfully. And it was time for my three-month scan immediately after that, after that visit with all 500 of those folks. And came home, took my scan, and there was a lung cancer recurrence. And this was just last year. And what should have been kind of initially feeling as defeating and, and, and beat up, I was able to just totally take it in stride. 
And the only reason I give credit to the fact is because I have that support above and beyond just my initial life, you know, my, my particular family from my lung cancer community, my lung cancer family. And that hope is what kind of kept me going. So I went in, I had learned, this is at the point that I had really learned and heard more about from all the speakers of like biomarker testing and, and different sorts of, of treatments and um, just how important exercise and, and nutrition and on all these other different things can be. And went through and met with my oncologist, and we were able to do an ablation, that initial tumor, fortunately, which is a relatively new process that they're doing in the lung cancer community. For years, they've been doing it for liver tumors and other such things. And they were able to go in and totally ablate the tumor. Didn't have to do chemo. I didn't have to do radiation. I was able to just go in for a couple hours, and then make one night in the hospital and get that knocked over. Although right. I wasn't, it didn't really seem to bother me too much as far as, uh, like, it didn't seem to diminish, diminish my hope. It did kind of seem to really impact my husband and my kids a little bit. It, it started to make it a little real that this isn't just like a one and done sort of a thing, that lung cancer might become part of, more part of the communication, more part of, like, almost like an unwelcome member of the family that we just kind of have to just put up with. You know, and so after after that, I was back at it for six months, give or take, of uh, no evidence of disease after the ablation. And then again, uh, this past September, I had another recurrence. Mm -hmm. And this time I wasn't just coming straight from a conference and I wasn't quite feeling as hopeful. I was feeling kind of beat up. And it was feeling like it was really getting real, really getting me down. And that I was able to just kind of like reach out and I've got the network now. Now I have a network of people. Now I've got that lung cancer family. Now I've got the brother and sisterhood that I can really kind of believe in and can I connect to and get the resources, get the information. And that's kind of what like refills me. It's it, there's there's just actually being able to see that face and, and hear that the people care and hearing hearing their talk. So we had to go through some radiation this past fall and finish that up in November. November um, is right now. It's just the first of June, so um, about seven months. No evidence of disease, and you know, it was right after that we finished the radiation that my doctor and I talked about it and. There was some dispute as to which way we should go next because, like I said, I was high PDL one, which means I'm a good candidate for immunotherapy. And mm -hmm. I kept pushing and asking all along, "What what is this biomarker? And do I have a biomarker?" She's like, "No, no." Nope. I said, "Well, can we do like can we do some sort of like plasma testing? Can we look for circulating tumor DNA through blood? You know, do we do another test?" She's like, "No, I really don't think we need to do that." Well, finally, we said, I'm going to go in for a second opinion. You know, let's let's make a decision based on a, another set of eyes on this, on my chart. So we went up and I got a referral over for a second opinion at a big research hospital and talked to the doctor and to just kind of see what are the options, listen to another set of, you know, information. There's so much information out there and just staying up to date and staying current 
in the lung cancer community is very difficult. Yeah. So if you if you if you talk about that, right? Because when we as as a team we uh, go to the ASCOs, we go to the American Society of, of Clinical Oncology or the American Association of Cancer Research or the lung cancer meetings here in the United States and around the world. We come home with a lot of information, information that is catering to physicians. But on the, on the patient side, I mean, you also have access to an overwhelming amount of information that is, that is maybe confusing, confusion generating for you at one time. How, how do you respond to that, that news? How do you sift through that information? That's a lot of what we need to do, and I use the support group to do. I'm able to know now who to kind of go to. And it's from that support community that I've been able to kind of identify what are valuable resources and what are not valuable resources for me on an individual basis, like where I stand right now. Did that answer how the way you were phrasing that question? Yeah, how, how to shift to that information, right? How to? Uh, yeah, how, well, I think how I sift through the information is I kind of like I'm reading the information and I'm, now I have enough of a basis for it. But the only reason I have that basis is from going in and having ta- spoken with the people in the support groups and the, the major organizations that I know are valid. I mean, when I was first diagnosed, I had crazy emails and crazy people posting things on my Facebook page and, and what have you about, like, here, take this dog dewormer. I kid you not, they're, like, telling you to take a dog dewormer or don't mm-hmm. do not do this or don't do that. And I'm concerned that there's people that are actually listening to this to this information, but being able to kind of sift through it and being able to know who is what and who is where, you have to be able to go to the these legitimate lung cancer organizations like the Longevities, the go to the Lung Can, um, know the International Association, the study of lung cancer is out there for that, and being able to kind of look at the patient pages. And being able to look at that, it is a fire hose of information. And I just recently attended my first ASCO meeting. And, mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I, I cannot even imagine if I was an oncologist how they could possibly even process all this. I have a whole new level of respect. But it's like <laughs> so much information. It is yes. so hard to get through it all. Yeah, you. I think you um, refer to the, uh, the virtual meeting uh, that you uh, attended this over the weekend, I believe. Yes, absolutely. Right. It, it, it is a whole level of difference if uh, you have a chance and hopefully that uh, that will come sooner than later to actually go to an ASCO meeting in, in a live meeting like like we normally would have around this time in Chicago and walk the the walkways and, and, and meet and, and talk in person to people. I think that the overwhelming amount of information over the weekend, that was absolutely almost too much. I think if you have a chance to meet in person with the oncologists and, 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 and the hematologists that are normally running around in, in, in doing those meetings, it, it puts things in perspective for you. And I think that is what the most important thing is, uh, not only for you as a patient, but actually for the, the, the physicians as well, because you're wondering about the information. Then there's another matter of fact is that things in in the community need to be updated, making sure that doctors know things about that there as well. Let's take a break. And then we're back with our interview with Terry Conneran. Terry is a lung cancer survivor and patient advocate. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. 
Knowing your breasts can save your life. Go to knowyourgirls.org for the facts you need on breast health. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and the Ad Council. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hoffman, and this is the Alcazine Brief. You are helping in that area because you set up a organization called Cress Kickers. Yes, uh, I've set up the Cress Kickers after I went in for my second opinion and found out that my biomarker type was Cress. Um, despite the fact that I asked my doctor, she wasn't telling, she didn't feel it was important to tell me about the KRAS mutation, uh, mostly because um, it, it's not a targetable mutation right now. Now, we say right now because every day we're getting one step closer to having that information. But I did learn the value of having support within a specific biomarker from having become involved with these other different organizations with the different support they have, one medication for one, one group or one type of biomarker or another can actually harm somebody that doesn't have that type of biomarker. And that genomic testing is absolutely crucial for lung cancer patients. My personal feeling is that it should be done for all, all lung cancer patients so that the doctors can actually give you the right medication the first time. And as a patient, I can assure you it's, it's hard to wait, but it's the right thing to wait because there are certain things that if you take, take TKIs, you can't take the immunotherapy because they actually have toxic implications and what have you. And it's just crucial. And so what I've done is I've started an organization called KRAS Kickers, and the KRAS Kickers are for people with that have the KRAS mutation. KRAS is responsible for more lung cancer than any other mutation, and it's been considered undruggable for these years because they haven't been able to find something to treat it yet. Again, there's things in trials. There's things that are looking at it right now, and we know about it. We know that it's a problem, and we're starting to figure out the exact way to be able to treat it, and that's super exciting. But once that information is brought together, we need to have to be able to disseminate the information to the patients so the patients know what's out there and they can actually kind of share their resources, whether it's, you know, that they're not the only person that's feeling itchy or, or just know that there's a clinical trial in their particular area. And honestly, even if it doesn't apply to their type of cancer, I'm finding for me, like I have a KRAS G12D, well, right at the moment, there's not a particular medication. But every time that I see that something comes out for one of the other types of lung cancer that does have something that can be treated with a targetable drug, such as the mm-hmm. ALK or the UTFR and ROS1 and whatever, I'm feeling hopeful because 
even something like an uh, MET, a MET amplification, is being treated, that's a small percentage. That means we're getting that much closer. And that fills me with hope. That gives me opportunity. And it just tells me that we just need to do more and get more information out there. And the only way we can get the right information is by getting that biomarker testing done in a comprehensive manner for the patients. And my hope is that the doctors and, and the patients will care enough to be able to kind of connect with each other so they can share that support and share that sense of community that I have found so, so giving and just it, it's so crucial to my actual health. So now, a question about, about information, right? I mean, we were talking a little bit about the overwhelming amount of information, the emotional kind of roller coaster that you go through as a patient. What are some of the things that, based on your own experience, you would, rec- would recommend to people that are newly diagnosed with a form of lung cancer? Some of the steps that you maybe you wished you would have done uh, the moment you were diagnosed or... Maybe even before diagnosis, um, you, you knew that something was wrong or you didn't feel comfortable. What, were, what are some of the things that are, uh, in retrospect, important to consider? You know, one of the most important things is, you know, for years, I just kind of really thought that something was quite wrong with me and something had been kind of leading up and you know, what have you. I never really pushed it. And I, I do think that that was a mistake on my part. And I do think if you think that there's something going on, you need to push it and you really need to encourage your doctor. And if that doctor's not really being receptive, perhaps consider a new doctor. But if somebody who's being just first diagnosed, you know, I would tell tell them that no matter what, do not accept the fact that this is your disease. This is not who you are. Do not accept the stigma that has anything to do with it. Do not accept blame. Anybody can get the lung cancer. And as far as the biomarker testing, it is crucial to get that done. The biomarker test is really what is going to be able to definitively tell the doctors the best course of action for you to really give you a really good quality of life. That biomarker is is kind of where it's at. And reach out to the community because the lung cancer community is out here and we're out here in force and we're very visible and we really want to help. And there, all you have to do is ask. There's peer mentoring, there's phone calls, you can go on Facebook. There's all sorts of different apps out there that you can do or not even do it if you're not computer savvy. But don't just randomly just start looking at uh, websites. You need to actually look at the legitimate ones that actually um, are for your patients. So that that is definitely good advice. Now, in line with that advice, if people want to know more about uh, what you're doing with your organization, uh, where can they find more information? Well, the KRAS Kickers have a website. It's kraskickers.org. And it's you can go there. There's see some videos about what KRAS is or check me out on, on Facebook. When, or, and I'm involved with all the different organizations, the major lung cancer ones, uh, Longevity, the GoTo Foundation. I'm on the board with um, Live Lung, uh, National Lung Cancer Roundtable, member of ISLAC, and ASCO. So, again, if people might not necessarily need information from your organization or you might not be able to directly help them, you may be able to point them 
in the right direction to go to the the people, uh, the professional organizations, as well as the patient advocacy organizations, to really look at 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 their case and to get the information they need. Be afraid to get a second opinion, and absolutely had to those like go to foundation, which is an advocacy organization and is a research organization as well. Uh, and there's other organizations out there, like like I said, it's the same groups, the GoTo Foundation, Longevity. There's also a Lung Cancer Foundation of America. A lot of these are research foundation. All these organizations have very legitimate information that can actually help you and point you in the right direction and show you. You don't have to participate. You don't have to sign up for every single last thing, but you can absolutely go in there and find the information that you need and how to connect. Like I said, whether it's through Facebook or through LinkedIn or through um, just like a phone call and getting a phone buddy, they, they're more than happy to match you up with somebody that can talk to you and kind of answer some of your questions from a real life perspective. And I think uh, that is uh, a good uh, point to, uh, to end our interview today. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Terry. I really enjoyed uh, your information, our time together uh, in, 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 in talking about this. And I do hope that um, our research will go on as it should be go on to uh, actually bring hope for uh, more people, uh, even with difficult mutations like the K-Rest uh, mutation. Thank you very much. Thank you. For us here at the Engagine Brave, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors and advertisers, for your ongoing support. For more information about supporting the Engagine Brief, check our online journal Engagine at www.engagine.com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology, text the word CANCER, C-A-N-C-E-R, to 66866. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongus in Brief. The Oncazine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by Inpress Media Group. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.